difficult issues that are faced in driving in dementia is a specific topic that often comes up in care settings. And then finally, uh, presentation around how to support, uh, an approach to think about how to support families and people with dementia in making these decisions. So really exciting day, um, and I hope that uh, we'll have time for lots of conversation as the day goes on with these wonderful experts who will be presenting today. So my, it's my pleasure to first introduce uh, Dr. Uh, Robert uh, Zarowitz, uh, who uh, had, did his residency at uh, the Long Island Jewish Medical Center and received a fellowship in geriatric medicine at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. He's received a number of awards over the years, including a special recognition award for outstanding service on the Health Systems Innovation Economics and Technology Committee in uh, 2010. He has a number of academic appointments, both in, in Georgia and in New York, and is board certified and licensed in internal medicine, geriatric medicine, and hospice and palliative care medicine. He's a fellow in the American College of Physicians, as well as in the American Geriatric Society, and is on many committees, including topics of health economics, technology, home assistant facility uh, uh, technology, as well as, uh, uh, as uh, congressional uh, Medicare reform advisory boards. Uh, he's the founding president of the Georgia Geriatric Society, co-chair of the practice advisory group, and has published many articles on primary care geriatrics, aging, spirituality, care in nursing homes, uh, and hospice care. So we're really delighted to have this this expert uh, to kind of start off the talk uh, uh, the day uh, focusing on the ethical issues uh, with dementia. Dr. Zarowitz, thank you for being here. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I, you know, it's kind of exciting a number of states, but New Hampshire, and uh, this is my first time in, that I ever set foot. It's an honor. And the nice thing about going first is that I don't have to worry about following anyone's act. Um, so whoever comes after me can follow my act, if, and, and I'm sure it's not going to be much of a problem. Um, but I hope to at least kind of set the stage here by giving you a brief overview of ethics, but focusing on the very difficult problem of determining decisional capacity in individuals with dementing illnesses and with cognitive impairments. Um, and I was looking at the schedule, and I think you will find that the talk on denial that comes afterwards really is going to fit very nicely into this. So, without further ado, um, if I get this right, the first case we're going to discuss. This is Mrs. Alice Oliver. She's an 83-year-old woman, an active swimmer and gardener who suffered a right-sided stroke with mild left hemiparesis and dysphagia. During hospitalization, her motor deficits were improving, but she continued to have difficulty swallowing. A swallow evaluation was done, and she was able to tolerate a chocolate-pureed diet with nectarific liquids because she experienced asymptomatic aspiration with thin liquids. So the speech therapist recommended, recommended thickening all her liquids. Has anybody tried thickened liquids, by the way? Okay. You know what I'm talking about. 
So you enter this order on the chart, or if you're a nurse, you have to, you have to carry out the order. Mrs. Oliver hates thickened liquids. She refuses thickened liquids and insists that she'd rather take her chances with thin liquids. The nurses and the dietitians tell you they don't want to give her thin liquids because they don't want to be contributing to her aspiration, pneumonia, and eventual death. They don't want to be any part of it. They believe that by doing so, they'll be contributing to the risk that they were trying to ameliorate. So I'm sure many of you have found yourself in this dilemma. First, how do we weigh our duties as clinicians with the rights of the patient? And that leads into the second question, which is, how do we know that Mrs. Oliver really understands the risks she is taking by using thin liquids instead of thickened liquids? So we need to go briefly into a little bit of the philosophy of medical ethics. And this will be very brief, because this gives us sort of the basis and the jumping off point for talking about decisional capacity. So as I'm sure you are all aware, our free society values autonomy and personal choice or self-determination. Um, different societies and different cultures are different, but you know here in, in the Americas we are really emphasizing autonomy, uh, sometimes to extremes. Uh, but even, even within the different political parties and, and political philosophies, I think there is a general, in a, in a liberal democratic society, our culture really values a personal choice. However, choice is often accompanied by risk. And our respect for autonomy means that we have to accept the right of individuals to take risk. Now, in 1990, Congress passed the Patient Self-Determination Act. This provided the right to participate in and direct health care decisions, the right to accept or refuse medical or surgical treatments, the right to prepare an advanced directive. It prohibited institutions from discriminating against individuals without advanced directives, and it requires institutions to document information on advanced directives. And you know that the way that institutions do this can vary from the very simple, do you have an advanced directive? Yes? Okay, good. To much more, uh, much more uh, profound uh, discussions about advanced directives and, dis and, and developing healthcare proxies and living wills and pulsed and mulsed and all the other types of documents that are out there. So we've talked about autonomy. Now we have to talk about the duties of the clinician. And as health professionals, we value beneficence and non-maleficence. So beneficence simply means the duty to do good. Maleficent is, you know, one of the uh, uh, is, is the bad guy in Cinderella. We, male, uh, the movie is coming out, but I have nothing to do with that. Um, but non-maleficence is the duty to do no harm, which we all consider one of the basic uh, tenets of practicing medicine. Health professionals, as we all are, we try to promote good, we try to prevent harm. Sometimes the patient's autonomy conflicts with our commitment to do good and to prevent harm, and we have to kind of harmonize those conflicting values. Now, I, I want to go over 
There are some additional ethical principles. Individual dignity, of course, is the duty to respect the individual. Justice is the duty to treat patients fairly. Community is the duty to balance individual need with communal need. And authenticity is the duty to recognize that the patient's ability to choose a lifestyle consistent with his own values, beliefs, and habits should be valued and respected. So getting back to Mrs. Oliver, Mrs. Oliver refuses thin liquids, uh, thickened liquids. She wants to stick with thin liquids. She's willing to take the risk. So our problem is, number one, weighing our value of doing good and preventing harm with her right to personal choice and autonomy. How do we weigh these and how, how do we reconcile these conflicting values? Generally speaking, informed consent is the way that we as healthcare practitioners reconcile our duty to do good and prevent harm with risk, whether it's risk that we are suggesting that the patient take or risk that the patient offers to take. So informed consent is the process by which we balance our profession's commitment to autonomy, beneficence, and non-maleficence. It's necessary both when proposing a therapy or procedure or when a patient refuses a therapy procedure. In either case, we need to make sure that the patient is given adequate information to make an informed decision. How do we do that? There are three aspects to informed consent. Disclosure, which means that they have to be adequately informed. And the standard for disclosure is generally that we need to provide them with the information that a reasonable patient would require in order to make a decision. Anybody, has anybody looked at a package insert for medications and looked at the list of side effects? Are we required to, if we give a medication, if we prescribe a medication, are we required to go through that whole list? Generally, no. Generally, the most common side effects, the most common risks, what a reasonable patient should expect is what we are really duty-bound to provide to the individual. Second is voluntariness. We have to make sure that the patient is not being coerced to provide a decision. And there's a couple of aspects to that. Um, one is that we as practitioners are not coercing them. We should be giving a fair and balanced uh, ex explanation of the risks and benefits of a procedure. But we should also make sure that their family and friends are not coercing them to go one way or another. And I'm sure that we've all seen examples of where family really bring pressure to bear on a patient in order to make a decision. And sometimes that requires that we get them alone without family members or friends in order to discuss something in private and allow them to come to a decision. And finally, the third important element of informed consent is competency or decisional capacity. We have to make sure that the information that we provide to the patient is going to be understood and appreciated and uh, 
recycled in such a way that they can make an informed decision. So patients who are unable to make autonomous choices are said to lack decision-making capacity. And that is now where we're going to spend the rest of the talk. Um, any questions so far? Um, generally, I'll wait till the end for questions, but I've kind of finished the basic principles of ethics and I've rushed through it. So if there are any questions about that, I, I will move on. Any questions? Okay. Okay, so. There are a lot of myths about decisional capacity. And the first thing is that, the first myth that we often hear, decision-making capacity and competency are not the same thing. And even though these terms are often used interchangeably, uh, I do want to make a differentiation. Decision-making capacity is a clinical assessment of a patient's ability to make healthcare decisions. Whereas competency is usually used as a legal determination of the patient's ability to make decisions in general. Competency is usually determined in the courts. Decisional capacity is a clinical determination that is made at the bedside. However, we do use these terms interchangeably, so if I happen to mention competency, I'm really meaning decisional capacity. So again, I just want to review the elements of informed consent, disclosing information, assuring voluntariness, and assessing decisional capacity. Now we go into the four elements of decisional capacity. There is the ability to understand, the ability to appreciate, the ability to reason, and the ability to express a choice. If any of these are missing, if the, if the individual is unable to engage in any of these four elements, then that individual lacks decisional capacity. So we're going to go into these individually. So understanding is simply the ability to state the meaning of the information disclosed. So for instance, if I am talking about um, a spinal tap. I've explained what I have to do to do a spinal tap to the patient. How do I know the patient understands what I'm telling that individual? I may simply ask, can you tell me in your own words the reason that I'm recommending a spinal tap? Or if I'm doing a discussion about CPR, which is probably the most, whoops, the most common conversation that we have with patients, I may explain it and then say, can you repeat to me what I just told you about cardiopulmonary resuscitation? Or in the case of Mrs. Oliver, I may ask her to tell me why we are recommending thickened liquids. And it's simply the opportunity for the patient to state in their own words what was told to them so we understand that they get it. That's understanding. Appreciation is a little bit different. Appreciation is the ability to recognize that the facts of a decision apply to me, apply to the person. One can objectively say what CPR is all about or what thickened liquids are about, but they have to be able to relate it to themselves. 
So for instance, in the case of the spinal tap, I may say, okay, you explained what a spinal tap is and why it's recommended, that's great. But how can you, can you tell me how it might benefit you? Or CPR, after they've explained what CPR is, and you know, I, I might get a retired professor of philosophy, and that, that retired professor is repeating back all the statistics I, I, I gave him about you know, how terrible the prognosis is in cardiopulmonary arrest in a nursing home. And I say, okay, that's great. Um, can you tell me if you think it will help you? Well, there's a different, oh yeah, 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 I'm, you know, I wanna live and, and if I get CPR, yeah, I, I wanna live and, and I wanna go on and this'll be great. Well, that's a little bit different than, than on one hand, understanding the statistics and the, you know, the cold hard facts about it, but then being able to apply it to oneself. So with Mrs. Oliver, on the other hand, well, can you tell me how thickened liquids might be helpful to you? Well, Mrs. Oliver may say, well, yeah, you are recommending it because I have difficulty swallowing and thickened liquids will make it a lot easier for me to swallow without it going into my lungs. Okay, she understands the concept and she understands how it applies to her. On the other hand, if she tells me, you're making me, you're making me drink thickened liquids and they're really awful, you know, then I, I don't get that she really understands that it, it has to do with her. So that would be lack of appreciation. So the third is reasoning. And there's a, there are different types of reasoning. Reasoning really is the ability to ma manipulate and process information. Consequential reasoning is being able to infer the potential results of a choice, whereas comparative reasoning is weighing the merits versus the demerits of options. So this is a little bit different than understanding and appreciation. In the case of the spinal tap, I might ask the patient, you say you are more likely to not want to have the spinal tap. How is not having it better than having it? Now this requires some balancing of the information and the ability to process it. And for Mrs. Oliver, Mrs. Oliver, you said you prefer regular thin liquids. How is that better than thickened liquids? And now let's see if she can weigh the risks, the benefits, the merits, and the demerits of either of these choices. So we've gone through understanding, appreciation, and reasoning. Then the patient has to make a choice. This is simply the ability to state a decision. The person that I've told about the spinal tap, can he say yes or no? Um, I just want to make sure, do you still not want to have a spinal tap? They just have to be able to express that choice. Now that we have discussed this, would you like me to enter a do not resuscitate order on the chart? Or with Mrs. Oliver, now that I've explained the purpose behind thickened liquids, do you still want to drink thin liquids? Well, Mrs. Oliver already started out by expressing her choice, so we knew that right from the outset. But very often when we go through informed consent, we don't begin with a decision. We begin with informed consent and the decision is at the end. In the case of a refusal of a procedure, we're often starting out with a decision and working through understanding, appreciation, and reasoning.
So, let's go through some model questions for assessing capacity. The other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, we have many difficult decisions in, with demented patients. I mean, I, I think dementia is one of the greatest challenges of, of, of getting informed consent and determining decisional capacity because if you've seen one patient with dementia, you've seen one patient with dementia. Um, I did not really go into, I really didn't include in this a discussion about feeding tubes. Feeding tubes are particularly difficult because um, most of the literature has shown that feeding tubes in advanced dementia, in advanced, in, in end-stage dementia, probably provide very little benefit compared to risks. Uh, both the American Geriatric Society and AMDA, which is the Society for Post-Acute Care and Long-Term Care, have come out recommending against offering uh, pegs or feeding tubes in patients with advanced dementia and instead recommend hand feeding, which can take a very long time. And, and as you know, nursing home staffs are saddled with a lot of responsibilities and often don't have the time to do it, but that is what they recommend. And yet, physicians will often bring up feeding tubes as an option in end-stage dementia. And even if they don't, families often bring it up. And so the question, once again, is, informed consent, how do we provide adequate information for the patient to make or the family member who has to make the decision to make an informed choice. So keep that in mind because as we go through this, we may need to come back to that. So here are some model questions. The ability to understand relevant information. We may simply say, please tell me in your own words what I've told you. And it's better to do this open-ended. The nature of your condition, the treatment or diagnostic test recommended, the possible benefits from the treatment or diagnostic test, any other possible treatments that could be used and their benefits or risks, or the possible benefits and risks of no treatment. Now, depending on the procedure, we would have to determine how much of this is really necessary. And we'll get into that a little later, but the example I will give you is how much informed consent does a phlebotomist need to get when uh, he walks into the room and asks the patient if I can draw, may I draw your blood? What are the risks? What are the benefits? How much detail really needs to be gone into? Probably not very much because the risks are very low. And, you know, it's a simple, it's a simple finger stick. The same probably can't be said for coronary artery bypass graft. I don't think too many cardiothoracic surgeons say, do you mind if I do a cabbage on you? <laughs> so depending on the decision at hand, will sort of dictate the amount of information that needs to be provided. So going on, we've talked about the chance that X might happen with this treatment. In your own words, can you tell me how likely you think that X will happen? That's getting back to that professor of philosophy that 
is going to spew back these percentage chances. Now, this may be something that may be more relevant, for instance, if we're offering chemotherapy or radiation to a patient with cancer. Do they really understand their survival chances? Do they really understand these statistics that we're throwing at them? Can we provide them the information in a way that they will understand? And what do you think will happen if you decide not to have treatment? So that's understanding the relevant information. So, you know, going back to CPR, you know, very often CPR is a fairly succinct conversation, and usually we're asking, we're telling the patient, this is what CPR is, do you want it or not? It's not always clear that the patient really understands what CPR is. So my recommendation is that when you have these conversations, simply ask, if you're not sure whether the patient can understand, simply ask the patient to repeat back what you told them. And you'll get an idea of whether they really understand it or not. So. The ability to appreciate the situation and its consequence. This is getting to be the person's ability to relate these issues to myself. So what do you believe is wrong with your health now? Do you believe it's possible that this treatment or diagnostic test could benefit you? Do you believe it's possible that this treatment or diagnostic test could harm you? We've talked about other possible treatments for you. Can you tell me in your own words what they are? So there's a little bit of overlap with understanding, but the important thing is that this is now the opportunity to see whether this individual can relate the information to my own condition. So for instance, I, I, and, and this is going to actually dovetail nicely with the next talk about denial. I walk in to see a patient. This gentleman has bad gangrene of his left leg. We've tried everything. He's not a candidate for vascular procedure. The only thing that's going to, to ameliorate this and perhaps save his life is going to be amputation. So I go through the process of informed consent, tell him all about his condition, the, the amputation, what the procedure is, what are the risks and benefits. And then I say to him, can you tell me back what I just told you? And he said, yes, um, amputation is often used when gangrene is irreversible and there's no other options and here are the risks and here are the benefits. I say, great. And he, and he says, but I don't have gangrene so I don't need that procedure. Okay. That is a very good understanding of the information that I provided him and a lack of appreciation, which in this case is denial. And now we have to determine the reason for that. But here's someone who fully understands the procedure, but because of a lack of appreciation, and this is sort of extreme, but it gives you a good illustration, because of the lack of appreciation lacks decisional capacity. So we could also ask, what do you believe would happen to you if you decided you didn't want to have this treatment or diagnostic test? So the man with gangrene goes, I'll be fine, no problem. I, I need my leg to walk. He hasn't been walking for several months. But 
this, we know this is a problem. The ability to reason a little bit more complex, we can ask, tell me how you reached your decision not to have or not to have this treatment or diagnostic test. What things were important to you in making the decision and how would you balance those things? Now once again, I think the, the complexity of the decision is going to dictate to what kind of detail you need to go into. You know, comparing the drawing of blood, which you're probably not going to say, well, you know, tell me how you reached your decision not to let me draw your blood. I think probably most phlebotomists, if they get a refusal, will probably say okay and, and, and walk out of the room. Um, however, for more complex decisions, we may need to go into much greater detail to explore the patient's reasoning and what their thinking processes are and, and how intact they are. And finally, the ability to choose. Have you made a decision about the treatment options we discussed? And do you feel like you have a choice? And that's assuring that voluntariness is part of the informed consent process. Now, what I find very interesting about CPR, this is sort of an aside, we go through this whole discussion of CPR and the, the, you know, what's going to happen if you have a cardiopulmonary arrest. And the patient says, I can't decide. Let me think about this. Okay. The thing about CPR is if you haven't made a decision, you've made a decision. Because in most states that I'm aware of, there's a presumption that if there's not a do not resuscitate uh, order on the chart, then consent to CPR is presumed. So in effect, they have made a decision. So we may have to kind of delve into whether they really understand that by putting off a decision, they have essentially made a decision. So let's talk about Mrs. Blodgett. She's a 93-year-old nursing home resident who's asked whether she would like a DNR order on the chart. She can describe CPR and says that she knows it entails being on a machine. She further says that she does not want to be on a machine. She knows that she would die without a machine, but feels she probably wouldn't survive CPR anyway. So she requests a DNR order. Show of hands, I know this is very brief. Show of hands, how many people think she has decisional capacity? Oh, you're not very uh, persuaded. So in this very brief case, she's able to describe CPR, so she understands it. She knows it entails being on a machine, which is sort of part of the procedure. She knows that she doesn't want to be on a machine and that she would die without a machine if she had a cardiopulmonary arrest. So she appreciates that it relates to her. And she, her reasoning is intact. She's talking about on the, you know, going through CPR, not going, through CP, not going to CPR, merits and demerits, and understanding that she would die without it and probably would die even with it. So her reasoning is intact. And she's asking for the DNR order, so she's expressing a choice. So I understand this is very brief, but here she fulfills all the requirements of 
decisional capacity. So let's get into a, a few more myths. Decision-making capacity, this is a, a myth that is often, um, I often hear in many, many facilities, decision-making capacity is an all-or-nothing phenomenon. Well, lacking capacity for one decision doesn't imply lacking capacity for another decision. So one can make a decision for DNR, but may be unable to appreciate or understand the information necessary to make a decision about the leg amputation. Decisions vary in risks, benefits, and complexities depending on the procedure or the therapeutic option that's in front of us. So we have to choose a threshold for determining decisional capacity based on the complexity and risks of the decision. So the example of drawing blood, very simple. We're going to have a pretty low threshold for determining that the patient has decisional capacity. Basically, do you mind if I draw your blood this morning? Yes. Okay. Done. Versus, as I say, cardiac bypass is a little more complicated, and the DNR order is probably intermediate in there. The important lesson to learn out of this also is that decisional capacity is determined by the individual decision that has to be made. It's not necessarily a global determination of abilities, of, a, of an individual's ability to make any decision. We have to do it on an individual, an individual basis based on the decision in front of that individual at that time. So our factors in selecting how we're going to go about determining decisional capacity really are based on a couple of things. First, the risks and benefit ratio of the treatment. If the, if the benefit of the treatment overwhelmingly outweighs the risks, we're probably going to have a, a lower threshold to test competency. If it's sort of mezza-mezza, then we're really going to have to get a better understanding of the patient's ability to fulfill all these criteria. And here's the other thing. The patient's decision itself may dictate the standard that we have to use to, to determine decisional capacity. If the patient agrees with us, we're probably going to have a somewhat lower threshold than if the patient disagrees with us. If the patient consents to a procedure or diagnostic test that we recommend, and they're on the same page, we're probably going to have a slightly lower threshold than if they say no. So one can look at this two-by-two two table, consent versus refusal versus the risk-benefit ratio of, of treatment, a low test of competency if the patient consents and the benefits vastly outweigh the risks, or if the patient refuses, however, the risks vastly outweigh the benefit. On the other hand, if the patient refuses a very favorable test, we're probably going to have a higher test of competency, or if the patient consents to a very risky procedure, we're going to have a higher test of competency. I would say in, in the case of the feeding tube in advanced dementia, 
I would recommend a very high test of competency. And unfortunately, what I see is very often adequate information is not provided to the family who has to make the decision. And we go ahead with the feeding tube because it's sort of the easy way out. But I think as we have gained more and more information and literature about the risks of, uh, of percutaneous endoscopic astrostomy tubes in advanced dementia, I think it is incumbent upon us to make sure that we use a very high test of competency if it comes up. And then there's the whole ethical question of whether we even need to offer it, but I, I don't have enough time to get into that. All right, case number three. An 87-year-old male resident of a nursing home has severe Alzheimer's dementia with a mental status exam, a mini mental of 12 out of 30. He requires assistance in all activities of daily living and cannot recognize staff or family members. When asked by the phlebotomist if she can draw his blood for a blood test, he replies yes and allows her to do it. Kind of gone into this. Is that okay? Yeah. Probably okay, very little risk, unless there are requirements for informed consent for drawing HIV, which many states have, or many have done away with, but still many states have. That would be a different situation. Which gets us into the third myth, that cognitive impairment equals lack of decision-making capacity. Well, there is, and, and this I should, I should impress upon you, even though I've gone over some sample questions and uh, techniques for determining decisional capacity, there is no single universally accepted test for determining decisional capacity. And in fact, in, there have been studies where cases, very detailed cases, have, presented, have been presented to a panel of experts. And you'll have six experts and being, after being presented with a sample case, three of them will say patient lacks decisional capacity and three of them will say patient has decisional capacity. So even among experts, there can be a great deal of disagreement. So it comes down to the individual sitting with the patient to make that determination. But depending on the complexity of the decision, cognitively impaired people do retain the ability to make certain decisions. So I'll get into one study. This was a study on the ability of uh, demented patients to execute a healthcare proxy. So as you know, the, the decisional capacity needed to execute a healthcare proxy in which another person is designated to make treatment decisions has generally been described as a low level of capacity. One does not require a great deal of sophistication or understanding in order to appoint someone to make decisions for them. Thus, the informed consent process used to assure that a person understands the issues relating to executing a healthcare proxy can be simpler and less stringent than the process used to determine other uh, tasks, such as a living will, which actually requires the enumeration of preferences. So base, here are the guidelines for 
determining a health care proxy, appointing an agent. We know that residents have a right to make their own decisions. They can ask someone to make these health care decisions for them if they become unable to do so. We call that substituted judgment. These decisions might involve life and death. And then they can sign a document or verbally consent to a document that authorizes the appointment of an agent as a health care proxy. So they develop these guidelines for devising health care proxies. Inter whoops. They found that th these guidelines were more predictive than a mini mental state exam identifying residents capable of executing health care proxies. And what was most interesting about this study was that 50% of residents with a mini mental state exam between 1 and 10 were able to e execute a health care proxy. 73% of testable residents, approximately three quarters of whom were cognitively impaired, evidence sufficient capacity to execute a healthcare proxy. So we cannot assume that because an individual has dementia that they are incapable of making decisions. The only way to know whether they can make a decision is to go through the exercise of allowing them to make that decision. So in the case of CPR, the only way to know that a patient lacks capacity to make a decision about CPR is to go through the exercise with that individual. And we shortchange that patient if we assume that because they have dementia, we need to go to the next of kin or the person that's on their health care proxy. And that's, a, 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 if anything, is the most important point about decisional capacity, it is that that the only way to determine decisional capacity is to determine decisional capacity and not to make an assumption that someone lacks it because they have cognitive impairment. Case four, we've already gone over. That's the man with gangrene. Myth number four, lack of decisional capacity is a permanent condition. It is not. Capacity can wax and wane depending on underlying conditions. So many of you probably understand delirium is characterized by an acute confusional state that waxes and wanes. One can be lucid in the morning and very confused in the evening. One can be very confused on Tuesday and lucid on Wednesday. In the cases of a fluctuating mental state, one must reassess decisional capacity. So on Monday, the patient was delirious. We tried to discuss CPR, couldn't get anywhere. We went to the agent listed on the healthcare proxy who signed a DNR. The next day, this patient is lucid. That DNR is now invalid because this patient has now retained, has, has has decisional capacity returned, we now have to go to that patient. So substituted judgment is voided when decisional capacity returns. 
Myth number five. Only mental health experts can assess decisional capacity. Do we have um, psychiatrists, psychologists, et cetera, in the audience? So have you had the experience of being asked to determine decisional capacity when no effort has previously been made? And do you get really upset when that happens? <laughs> All clinicians who are responsible for the care of patients should be able to perform routine capacity assessments. And, and most importantly, the professional who is most familiar with the details of that decision is best prepared to assess decisional capacity about that issue. So who should be obtaining informed consent? and determine decisional capacity for coronary artery bypass graft, it should be the cardiothoracic surgeon because it is he or she that knows the most about that procedure and the risks and the benefits. Now, another practitioner may be trained to understand the risks and the benefits and be able to communicate it, in which that's fine. However, it is that individual who is most familiar with the procedure that is really in the best position to provide informed consent and determine decisional capacity. So I sympathize with my psychiatrist colleagues who are often asked to see a patient to determine lack of decisional capacity for the purposes of CPR. They don't do CPR all that often. And, you know, they understand it. They, they really get it, and they can provide the information, but it's really not necessary. They have better things to do with their time, like treat depression and, and OCD. Which leads us to myth number six. All patients with certain psychiatric disorders lack decision-making capacity. No. Again, decision-making capacity must be determined based on the decision at hand. Now, you're going to have patients that are so severely demented, are unable to communicate, and you know from the outset that they're going to be unable to engage in a conversation about a, a specific decision, in which case you're going to be able to determine lack of decisional capacity off the bat without having to go in. But for the most part, I think patients deserve the presumption that they may have decisional capacity, and lack of decisional capacity should be proven rather than assumed. So the lack of decisional capacity should not be presumed based on underlying psychiatric disorders. Again, to determine decisional capacity, one has to go in and see whether the patient can actually make that decision. So a very simple mnemonic to remember the elements of decisional capacity is you are competent, U is understanding, A is appreciation, R is reasoning, E is expressing a choice, and if they fulfill U, R, then they are competent or they have decisional capacity. So back to Mrs. Oliver. Mrs. Oliver tells you that she chokes sometimes when she swallows and understands that it is due to her prior stroke. 
She says she knows that she could get pneumonia if she drinks thin liquids. She hates thick liquids and says they make her nauseated. She would rather take her chances with thin liquids, so she refuses thickened liquids. So first question, raise a hands. How many people think she has decisional capacity to refuse thickened liquids? Okay. Second question, how many of you in the same position would refuse thickened liquids? What about the nurses and the staff? A little bit off topic, but what if I am a nurse and I'm the one that has to give her the thin liquids? Am I obligated to give her the thin liquids knowing that I might be contributing to aspiration pneumonia? Or let, is it an obligation? Is it okay? Yes. Right, so uh, for those of you that couldn't hear, uh, she said that so long as the informed consent process is intact and done in a robust fashion and you really understand that the patient has decisional capacity, she would feel comfortable providing the thin liquids um, because it is based on the patient's autonomy and the weighing of the benefits and the risks. And I think that's reasonable. I think we will find professionals who do not want to participate and then you have to figure out, you know, how to work around that. Um, I think also different facilities are going to have different ways of dealing with this. Some facilities may have refusal of consent forms, and those forms are only as good as the content on the form. You still must go through the exercise, and there has to be good documentation that you've actually gone through this exercise. So anybody reading the chart can understand that the patient had decisional capacity and was given adequate informed consent to make this decision. So what if Mrs. Oliver lacks decisional capacity? The healthcare proxy is identified as her daughter is agent and the primary care team feels that supplying her with thin liquids would violate their duty to avoid harm. So is there a morally right and wrong decision? And, and here again, I think it really, this is a tough, a tough decision to make. I think understanding this process and understanding informed consent, I think it would be morally acceptable for professionals to provide her the thin liquids. However, there may be some professionals who really don't feel comfortable, who feel that it is violating their duties and then we've got to deal with that. Yes? Uh, the model you described, the UR confidence, sounds great for decisions in general. So would you go through that same process with the daughter? Oh, that's a very good question. So the question is, in substituted judgment, um, I'm glad you brought that up. If we have to go to the agent who's listed on the proxy, do we also have to go through this process? Yes. And I'm sure all of you have probably had the experience of looking at, of talking to the person on the healthcare proxy form and not really sure they can make a decision either. 
But informed consent is informed consent. And that agent is performing substituted judgment. They are making a judgment, a decision, based on what they think that the patient would want if the patient could make a decision. So we have to follow the tenets of informed consent, and we still have to fulfill the elements of decisional capacity. So if the agent lacks decisional capacity, we're in trouble. A nice New Yorker cartoon. It's getting much harder for me to distinguish good from evil. All I'm certain about is what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. <laughs> so I will entertain questions. Any questions? Yes. Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, very, very interesting. Well, that's the whole, p the question is, you know, we talked about a patient who is confused, lacks decisional capacity, the agent makes a decision for them, the next day the person regains decisional capacity, invalidating the substituted judgment and requiring us now to go to the patient. What happens if the opposite happens? Mr. Smith is lucid on Monday, makes a decision, and then he's very confused on Tuesday. But that's really the purpose of advanced directives and advanced care planning. A, a decision made while lucid is usually going to apply even when they become confused. And we run into some issues with that because very often, you know, Mr. Smith signed the DNR when he was lucid. The next day he's confused and his daughter, who is the agent on the healthcare proxy, says, he's confused now, I want to rip up that DNR. And we have to explain to the, the daughter that no, this was his decision, we know what he wants, this is a binding decision, and it would be morally unacceptable for her to countermand the decision he made when he was lucid. Yes? Guardianship. Yeah, guardianship, you know, it, it's a complicated question um, because guardianship is, varies from state to state. Um, and, and I know in New York, when a, a legally appointed guardian is, you know, it depends on whether, whether they are guardian of person or guardian of property. A guardian of property cannot make medical decisions. A guardian of person can. What we find very often is that guardians do not want to get involved in CPR discussions. And so then you have to uh, go, you know, depending on the regulations and the laws in your individual state, you have to go through this exercise of determining, well, does that, this mean that there is no reasonable person available to make a decision on CPR? And then we have to go through the ethics committee. It really depends state to state but it can get pretty complicated. Um, it, it's hard to answer the question because guardians have various powers depending on the state and depending on the document, and very often we end up wading through a 30-page guardianship 
uh, document to figure out what the guardian can and cannot do. Ah. Ultimately, their guardians are the ones that have to approve. Yeah. So you want to include everybody in this in discussion. Oh, yes. But then they're reluctant to make some decisions. The guardians it's complicated. Yeah, and that complicates it more. So what if you have a patient, and, and the, the example given was a patient with schizophrenia who now has an appointed guardian who is empowered to make medical decisions, but I know that if I go to that patient, there are certain decisions that that person can still make. Morally, at least, ethically, I should go to that person and make de to make that decision. Legally, it's a little bit more complicated because I need to involve the guardian, and the courts have essentially taken away that individual's decision-making uh, ability. So I don't have an easy answer to this, but ethically, I would go to that patient, go through informed consent, determine decisional capacity, and if I believe that that person has made a choice based on having decisional capacity, I would take that information to the guardian and hope that the guardian would agree. Yes? Yeah, so you're going to get into, and I see there's a talk on the pulsed form later, and, you know, depending on the complexity of the documents, I mentioned healthcare proxy, but there are various documents in different states. Healthcare proxy, durable power of attorney for healthcare, pulsed, mulsed, living wills, and some of these documents are combined. So, you know, depending on the complexity, obviously just appointing an agent is the simplest procedure. But... Ideally, we try to get that individual to make their choices and preferences as robustly as possible well before the crisis. I think there, there's actually two aspects to that. One is making sure that the decision that was reached 
was one that, you know, that either, if the patient is able to make the decision, we go with the patient. If the patient is not able to make decision, then we go with the substituted judgment. However, if the introduction of thickened liquids uh, triggers these behavioral problems, that changes the whole risk-benefit ratio. And we have to take that into consideration. And suddenly, the risks are greater than the benefits. And thin liquids may actually be the less risky course to take. So I think it changes, it really changes the conversation. Is there, I don't think there's a talk on uh, behavioral symptoms of, of dementia, but um, that, that's a very interesting uh, question. Any other questions? Yes. It's just a big question on how addictions play into decision making. The question is how addictions play into decision making, and, and I think that's very complicated. Um, I, I think you still have to go through the elements, but I think the um, determination of appreciation is going to be difficult. The uh, determination of reasoning is going to be difficult. And again, it depends on the decision at hand. You still have to, I think, go through the same, you know, the same exercise, though. But you, I, I think you might need, you know, if you are a surgeon or you are a, you know, uh, any kind of practitioner that doesn't have experience with addiction, then you may have to work in tandem with someone who is an addiction specialist who really understands addiction in order to determine whether decisional capacity is present or not. But again, I, you cannot presume that it is not present because the patient is an addict. Well, thank you all very much.